You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 57. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Melanie Siebert. She's an ENT doctor who went from a stable hospital employee practice to a private practice. She's here talking about how she built something that is hers. She created the culture that she wanted, the experience that she and her patients have both appreciated. I hope you enjoy this episode. For more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com and join the Boss Coaching Facebook group. It's not too late to enjoy the giveaways. I've been giving away books, courses, and coaching. So head to Boss Coaching on Facebook. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I'm so excited to have this guest on. We have been like interacting online for, I don't even know how long, a long time. And so this is Dr. Melanie Siebert. She is um, an otolaryngologist, an ENT. And we've been talking about private practice because she made the transition from a stable employed practice to private practice, which of course, near and dear to my heart because I did the same thing. And so I'm definitely interested to hear her perspective because I get this question all the time and I know that she does as well. So, so Dr. Siebert, Tell us a little about your story. My story. Um, I am an ENT. I trained in Georgia. I loved being there. I had a great mentor. Um, and my husband's also a physician. And so while he finished up his residency, I was on the faculty at my academic center in Georgia. Uh, that was great. And then when he finished his residency, we decided to move to his hometown in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and I came here and I joined a very huge hospital group, um, a hospital that had just started an ENT practice. Um, and when I joined this hospital, it was a small hospital, I guess you could say, smaller, 240 bed hospital. Um, there is a beloved CEO. Um, the, the, the atmosphere at the hospital was very physician friendly. Um, everyone was all part of the team. Everyone loved their job. The nursing staff was happy. Everything was great. I would say it was like a utopia. So when I joined this hospital, I literally, anything I wanted, I got. So I do a lot of endocrine surgery. So I asked for a nerve monitor to use on my thyroidectomies and they said, sure, we'll buy you four. So it was really just this magical place. Um, over the first few years I was there, we grew that practice up to six physicians. So there were six ENT physicians. We had four audiologists. We had three allergy nurses. And we were just in this honeymoon phase for a few years. Um, but like most good things, the honeymoon phase actually ended. Um, and a, a few years in, it was I was at a CME conference in Charleston, which is a couple hours away, Charleston, South Carolina. And I met this physician who um, was very pro-private practice. And he approached me and he said, well, what do you think about private practice? I said, are you crazy? I have a great job. I love it. I'm just, I'm really not interested at all in leaving my current setup. So we just kind of parted ways peacefully. I blew him off and, you know, I, I kind of laughed. He had this idea of a lot of private practice doctors coming together throughout the state of South Carolina. I kind of wanted to, he really wanted to form this alliance between a lot of the doctors, just, you know, negotiating power, bigger numbers, bigger bigger negotiating power, essentially. Um, and I was 
kind of amused by that idea because I felt like in my town, I couldn't even get daughters together for a journal club. So I was like, how in the world could you get daughters to agree on anything? Um, so I was just going along in my hospital practice until that beloved CEO retired and, you know, and came a new CEO that had a much more corporate mentality. Um, the number of hospital administrators was multiplying exponentially. Um, and the culture of the hospital changed pretty rapidly over a couple of years. And I thought that was so interesting because, you know, we were just talking before we started recording about how, and I know people have said this to you and they've said this to me too, is like, you know, why did you move to private practice? Because that's not what the trend is. The trend is to go to employed. Um, and I think that you, you know, so wisely said that the, the trend that you're seeing is not the trend of going to employment. The trend that you were seeing was that the physicians being held in regard regard was going in the wrong direction. So for that reason, you felt like everybody else was going in the wrong direction. Right, right, absolutely. So, so as this, as you know, as, as it became the hospital I was working became a much more corporate mentality. The hospital expanded; it's the largest hospital expansion in the history of South Carolina, up to a five hundred bed hospital. Um, and as, as the hospital grew, as you can imagine, the number of administrators grew exponentially as well, which meant really the layers of bureaucracy thickened. Um, and so there was you know, a much bigger spread between the people on the front line, the physicians and the administrators. And, and when that happens, um, we all know what happens, right? When there's a, a bigger spread between the CEO and the physicians doing the work is that animosity develops. And, and quite honestly, people have different goals. Um, and so there was just a big cultural shift at that facility. And, um, you know, the ER became the, the, the busiest ER in the state. Um, and we were, as ENTs, getting eight, 10 consults a day. It just really, it was really out of control. Yeah. And I know that you and I were just talking, too, about Jimmy Turner's book, um, you know, Determined. And, you know, he's the one that, you know, kind of articulated like the more layers that you have in between there, it's, you know, become a little bit detached. The the leaders become detached about what the needs are. And, you know, for me being a coach too, I think every time that there is some sort of vacuum and distance, then we fill that with our mind reading, you know, so now we don't think that they necessarily have our best interests at heart because we honestly just don't understand where they're coming from and they don't understand where we're coming from because all those layers, everything gets lost in like this bad game of telephone. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's absolutely what happened. And, and it was at our institution, um, ENT kind of was looked at as I call it, I said ENT was the cleanup crew. Okay. So we, as ENTs, we were taking plastic surgery call. We were taking ENT call. We were covering any ophthalmology consults. We were covering any dental and oral surgery consults. Um, it, basically anything that came into this hospital above the clavicles, literally, I mean, retropharyngeal bleeds from spine fractures. It, it was called ENT. So, um, and, and, and so for, you know, a couple of years, we, as the ENT group went to the administration and said, guys, we, really this, that something has to change. Like we, we can't be the specialist that, cause we're not the specialist, you know? So, um, but, but as those layers were so thickened, it was, it was, we were kind of blown off in it, I guess you could say, um, because it goes back to what doctors do, right? Ultimately we're going to take care of the patient. 
even if I can't do it as well as the plastic surgeon would, um, I'm going to do my best. And so nothing changed because we, the ENT doctors, felt this obligation to always take care of the patients. And and so we came in even, even inappropriately, we came in to handle things. So. I think there's a really great point too, that we all feel as well as, as physicians, like we're not going to let the patients drop. And, you know, whether that is like uh, consciously chosen or whether that's just how it happens is that, you know, they know we are going to do that until one day we don't. So take us through where that thought process and, and the events that led you to saying that's, that's it. I'm going to have to do something. Well, it was kind of a culmination of, of several things of, um, you know, just like I said, the inappropriate consults, the being asked to handle inappropriate things um, and, and just being ignored, I guess, essentially the frustration, the frustrations of the ENT physicians, like we were just largely ignored um, just because we would handle things. Um, and then uh, fortunately, which I thought was unfortunate at the time, I had a shoulder injury. I was um, I had a couple small injuries and then I was playing volleyball with my kids and really trying to impress them with my ability to spike the volleyball and um, really finished off a nice rotator cuff tear. So ended up having a pretty bad shoulder injury, um, rotator cuff and labrum and had to have surgery to have it um, fixed because I got to the point where this was a light bulb moment. I was going along, not taking care of myself with this shoulder injury. Um, <laughs> and I was in the OR one day on call and I needed to move the headlight and I, I could not raise my arm above my head to move the headlight. So I had to manually use the opposite arm to move my right arm to move the headlight. And I realized, okay, I need to have surgery and have this repaired. Um, and so I was out of work for what ended up being a couple of months, uh, three months, really. Um, it was, I was depressed. I thought I may never work again. I got frozen shoulder. It was really a very hard time. But in retrospect, I think having that time gave my brain, it gave me a lot of time to work on my brain. And so I actually hired a coach and worked with a coach a little bit to really try to figure out what was important in my life and, and what I wanted to do with my life and my practice at that point. So that's when I started thinking that, gosh, maybe maybe I can do this. Maybe I can go into private practice. Maybe I can leave this amazing setup that, you know, what I thought had been an amazing setup all these years and succeed on my own. Now, I know coaching is gaining a lot more attention in, you know, the, the world of medicine and, and surgery. So tell us a little bit about how you found your coach and what was it about that that actually helped? So really word of mouth, um, you know, I'd been introduced to coaching, I don't know, five, six or seven years ago um, through Katrina Ubell, which then opened my mind uh, to the Brooke Castillo Life Coach School. Um, and then I knew I wanted to work with a coach in a one-on-one setting. And so really just word of mouth, I, I, I got a reference to another coach named Susie Rosenstein. Um, and I worked with Susie's um the thing Susie really likes to focus on is what is your dreams? What do you want to do in midlife? Like, what is your goal? You know, now that we're kind of to this midpoint, midpoint in our lives. Um, and so I worked with her independently or, or privately um, and really found that beneficial. And what's great about coaching is it helps. It helped me really figure out my goals, my dreams, um, and really get my thoughts organized into a fashion, a fashion that was useful. So I think a lot of us, because we juggle so many balls, 
um, it's hard to get ourselves focused. And I, I don't mean that like we're, we can't focus. Obviously we can focus, we can do surgery. We can see patients all day. And I, I could do that all day long, you know, with my hands tied behind my back. I mean, that was no problem, but in the downtime, my brain, I used to tell people, my brain was like ping pong balls. Like I just could sit here and I could feel my brain bouncing all around from thought to thought, to thought, to thought, um, which is very non-productive. So working with a coach really helped me get my thoughts organized, my plans organized and really figure out what I wanted to do. I completely agree. I mean, and a lot of times, because when we first have trouble, we seek advice. And a lot of times people are going to tell us action related things, or you just need to take a day off. You just need to do this. Now do some yoga. You just need some yoga. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Tell us these action related things that have worked for them, but may not work for us because we really have to understand the thoughts and the emotions before we get to that action. Because if I say, well, I'm just going to start taking a day off, but I haven't sorted my mind out to how necessary this is and how it's okay. And, and I haven't sorted out how, you know, I think about time and money and things like that, then those can actually be more stressful than, than if you were taking the time off of saying, this is a necessary part of planning that, you know, this is for my own growth and my own um, strategy for things. But, you know, both of those action or the action with different thoughts is going to give you different results. And for me, you know, that's the one thing that coaching helps with is that we don't focus on action related things, focusing on thoughts and how we feel about things. And that's how we change what our results are by doing the same actions sometimes. Absolutely. Well, that's I, it's so, so funny you say that because I used to think, oh, people say, oh, you need to meditate. You need to do yoga. You need to go get a massage. Right. I can do all those things. But once again, I'm sitting there and my brain is bouncing around with these 700 thoughts bouncing around inside of my skull. Um, So really, it comes down to managing the thoughts first so that those other actions can be beneficial. Exactly. I mean, you actually have to prepare for these like open spaces. You have to provide safety in those open spaces. Otherwise, that actually, I think, causes some harm. (laughs) Yeah, you're totally right. Because then you think, oh, look at this time I wasted. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because you haven't quite sorted out the, all your priorities from beforehand. Now um, I know, and you also mentioned something I wanted to bring out, which I think has been so totally necessary when it comes to both, you know, uh, private practice and managing your mind on that is that you always have to keep at the forefront why you're doing it mm-hmm. um, because it's going to get hard. And um, I mean, I'm not, private practice is not easy, but you know, when I, entered into private practice, I wasn't looking for easy, you know, I wanted to challenge myself, I wanted to kind of inspire myself, because I was, you know, quite frankly, a little bit bored with everything. Um, And, you know, I thought this was something that I wanted to do for myself. And I forgot that as I got into the overwhelm. And it was actually uh, a friend of mine who I was just sitting at the computer completely overwhelmed. And she looked at me and she's like, you know, you did this for a reason, right? And I was like, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) The reminder. So now I know that you mentioned that uh, you had to have this uh, idea of why you did this. So, and it sounds like the reason you did this is that something had to change, but what was it when you sorted through with your coach and your priorities, what was it that inspired you to do this? Like what, what were the things that you leaned on when it became a little overwhelming? Well, I just, I, I wanted to build something that was mine, you know, so here I am in, in, you know, in my mid to late forties and I thought, what am I doing? I'm, I'm building this, building this practice for this hospital that literally if I drop dead tomorrow, they would forget me in 20 seconds. And, 
interestingly that that happened we had a surgeon who dropped dead in the or and literally there it was like he was never there in a different department um and it was kind of this light bulb moment of like why am why am i building this reputation um really for an institution that would replace me in 20 seconds if i died so I wanted to build something that I could be proud of, um, where I thought could be easily accessible to patients, um, where I could give them an opportunity to come to an office that's easy to get to, easy to get around, actually financially better for patients to see me in my office versus when I was at the hospital, because it's much more expensive to see a doctor in a hospital practice. Um, and and then I could create the the culture, the, you know, I could create the culture that I wanted with the staff in my office. I couldn't agree with you more. Those are all the same reasons that I had. I think you articulated them so much better than I had initially to myself. (laughs) (laughs) So take us through the decision that, you know, once you decided, okay, that's it. I'm going to go call this guy up that I blew off a couple of years ago, because maybe he actually had a point. Right. Take us through that. So, you know, interestingly, I ran into him at a conference and um, it was actually at a business conference where they um, basically talking about private practice business. And we just started chatting. And I said to him, I said, you know, I just, I don't really understand why you're doing this. Like this, this, does that that make sense to me? Like, why would you invest all this time and effort and energy into um, helping doctors understand that they can be in private practice and be successful? And I just got to know him as a person and know his heart was really, I mean, Obviously, he's doing well financially, but he really has a goal to help doctors, you know, the younger generation, haha, but the the doctors coming up realize that they can maintain a viable private practice and build what they want um, and that they don't have to be beholden to someone else, i.e. the hospitals. Um, So as I talked to him more and more, I realized I realized the advantages of being part of a larger organization, obviously for negotiating power. Um, and I just, I realized that it was going to be possible. And I think that's a great setup that you guys have too, because it sounds like you have like a small group of six people as a private practice, but you maintain this relationship with other groups and act as one larger group, which is so important for the negotiating power and decreasing the overhead. Right. That's what we did. So so when I um, decided to leave the hospital, um, actually four of the ENTs, we were a practice of six, four of the ENTs left at the same time, one retired and and then the other two also resigned or did not renew our contracts, we should say. Um, and then we had loosely had some meetings with some of the other doctors in town in private practice. So we joined an affiliation. And so now we are a group of six ENTs. Um, we were not allowed to recruit any of our former employees, so we could we did not do that. And, and we did have restrictive covenants. Everybody always says, did you have a restrictive covenant? Yes, we had restrictive covenants. We had negotiated uh, ways out of that. We had negotiated in our contract a way to get out of the restrictive covenant financially, to, a way to get out of that restrictive covenant. So we did buy ourselves out of our restrictive covenants. Um, and then interestingly, once we opened our doors and posted jobs, there were a lot of people that we had good relationships with staff that applied for jobs in our new practice. So um, we, we've we been very fortunate. We have two audiologists with us and six ENTs in a group and, and a lot of great staff. 
it shows what you can do when you're determined. Um, and, you know, it is also like understanding what your worth is the, you know, you will have this non-compete. I know Michael Johnson talked about that in a previous podcast episode about these restrictive covenants, but, you know, it's also, rec- you know, realizing that we bring money to the hospital right. and, you know, we actually have more negotiating power. There may be this agreement, but oh. they actually have a lot to lose too. So if- I am so glad you brought that up. And, and this is really for people who are thinking of hospital employment. I, when I d- did go to the hospital, I told them um, I will never sign a contract that I can't afford to leave. And they will tell you these clauses are non-negotiable, but it's just not true. All of those clauses are non-negotiable. So every contract I ever signed, I made sure there was a clause of a way to get out of that contract. Um, and I refuse, you know, every time this new contract cycle came along with the hospital, they would try to take that clause out of there. And I would say, oh, well, if you take the clause out, I'm out of here. So um, I did always make sure there was a way to leave that, leave that contract. Yeah, I think always having an exit plan, especially when things are good, um, yes. is the best time to strategize for that. Uh, and in recognizing that, you know, the fear of like, well, you can't take anybody with you. Um, so th- that obviously brings the fear of like, what am I going to do? Yeah. But, you know, when you look at your why and what you're doing, it's like, I'm going to create this amazing culture for people to be at. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to create this place that I'm, that's mine, that I'm proud of, that people are going to go to. And mm-hmm. I can tell you, like, I have not had a problem recruiting. Um, you know, I basically open the door, people come running in. So yeah, I- yeah it's funny. I didn't know the team, my, my nurse practitioner, um, two nurse practitioners as well, uh, said, oh yeah, we call it hashtag CBIT culture. And I kind of <laughs> laugh at that, but um, I said, oh, I didn't know it. I didn't know it had a name, but I think when you create an environment that's understanding where people want to work, that's a positive energy. And it's interesting. I, I think I expect a lot from my staff and, and somebody said the other day, um, somebody said the other day, you know, well, when your staff is there, you really expect them to know what they're asking the patient, how to report it to you and how to do everything correctly. And so I do expect a lot from my staff, but we also, um, I let them know how appreciated they are as well. So I, I find that if staff knows that they are appreciated, they're willing to work hard. I completely agree. And, you know, that becomes the second lesson that you need to learn is how to manage people, because that could be such a huge challenge. Um, you know, I, I heard with private practice that the, the strongest or the biggest problem you're going to have is with personnel. And I've, I've certainly seen that. I mean, I think they're like the, the greatest strength we have and also potentially the greatest weaknesses if you're not careful. Um, so what are some of the personnel challenges that you've had and how have you overcome them? Well, obviously with uh, inflation, um, staff salaries have been a big issue. So we basically a few weeks ago increased, significantly increased all staff salaries. Um, Just, you know, and that's just what we have to do right now to keep our staff and keep our staff happy. And it goes back to retention, right? So it is so much more work and so much more expensive to retrain new staff that truthfully, by at the end of the day, if you just raise everyone's salary a few dollars an hour, um, that means a lot to them. And in the long run, it ends up making more sense financially because it, we're not having to train new staff all the time. I completely agree. Um, you know, I've gone through this evolution myself too, because, you know, we look and see that physician reimbursements are decreasing, mm-hmm. inflation is increasing, right. and, you know, our margins are going to get narrower. However, you know, I wouldn't, do it any other way because the one part about this culture is that you get invested in people. Um, and my evolution of practice in my third year now has been from the first year of growth 
the second year of optimizing and this third year of, of investing in my people. Um, and so I may not make as much money as I did before, but that's sometimes not the point. And in fact, if I invest in them, I'm finding that they work even harder for me. So I'm getting more value for what I'm spending, um, in that respect. And so, you know, that ends up being kind of complicated math, but I don't think that the margins are going to be as narrow as I think that they are. So interesting. So interesting that you say that I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, it's, I, one way to look at it is it, well, every dollar I give to the staff is a dollar out of my pocket. That is true. But what I've learned over the years is when I have staff that can handle, handle things, you know, with, with, because they know our routine, they know our system, they know our patients, they know the answers to the questions. It just saves me time and frustration in the long run. So I, I think I, I think you're right. I think, yes, if we look at the reimbursement rates going down, the expenses going up, then you say, oh, gosh, obviously we're going to make less money. But as the, as the practice, practice succeeds, um, you're, we're going to end up doing better in the long run. So I agree. And then the math is... I completely agree. And the math is not simple in many different ways, too. I hired a nurse practitioner and, you know, that we just talked about the recorded episode last week that I'll air, I think, before this of nurse practitioners and PAs is if you look at the math, they cost you something, but they also give you a lot back. They either widen your funnel for patients or they give you a lifestyle part back. And uh, this last week was my nurse practitioner appreciation week as she was out with COVID. And I had to do all the stuff that I did before. And you know, not only, you know, monetarily, I may make more money because she was not there, but the amount of stress and overwhelm and the amount of extra work that I had to do, I was doing notes until eight o'clock on Thursday. I didn't have some flexibility of things like that. I started realizing just the appreciation of what I have built um, by, you know, spending money for the lifestyle and it does widen the funnel. It does. And and then the other thing you have to think is what is your, what is your, um, brain health worth, right? right? So the things that waste our brain energy are the the tasks. And so as many of those little tasks as we can give to somebody else, the more brain space I have to focus on the things I want to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, it's your brain health is worth something. And the, the thing is, is when you have somebody taking care of as many of those little tasks as possible, and you can focus on the big stuff, you're gonna, once again, you're gonna be more successful because you're either seeing more patients or managing them more efficiently or just enjoying it more, quite honestly. I completely agree. And that's going to lengthen our career. So, I mean, how many years short of our career are we going to do if we continue in this path and how much is the loss of that potential income going to be? Oh my gosh. I can't. So this is the exact conversation I've had with a a couple of my partners is I said, you know, you, you want to go work at the hospital and you get that big salary for a few years mentally i mean how long can you do that for me i i was going to be retired before i was 50 because that pace was really beyond it just was not a healthy pace and i think you know we're seeing that nationwide that that pace is not healthy and as, as we talk about you know physician suicides physician depression burnout rates things like that yeah those big salaries are great but it's really not a sustainable pace so right that's my whole thing is is maybe i make a little bit less but I can do this for more years and actually enjoy it and feel like I'm contributing to the better good of the world. 
I agree. And I didn't really, um, it wasn't until I think this weekend that I noticed it, um, that I actually, I dropped to um, 0.8 FTE because I, you know, added the nurse practitioner. I, I built in Wednesdays. I initially had random growth days, but now Wednesdays are my growth days. I still have some administrative things that, that I need to do, but because I'm able to control my my schedule and the people and how they work, I was able to kind of like build this hole in the schedule um, that I think as employed, I would not be able to do. Um, some of the people at my hospital are employed by one of the, the big names in the area. And they, I think they have to do like, before they make a change in their clinic, they need like three months notice just to take a day off. So if they want to go like, go see their kid in, in a ball game that came up, suddenly they can't do it. And right. like to request time off, it has to be several months in advance, like something crazy. And I'm like, gosh, I mean, I think that's probably going to shorten our career and decrease our amount more than, than what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. What are some of the other challenges that have come up for you that you've overcome? Um, you know, the, the, I call it the middle of the night thought processes when my, when I'm lying in bed and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, I've had to make so many decisions. And so I'm the managing partner in our group. So, so that means I'm the person and we opened our office from scratch. I'm talking about bought a building, completely renovated it. And in ENT, we have a lot of equipment, a lot of expensive equipment and, and just, you know, nasal endoscopy, flexible laryngoscopy, all these really expensive things. And so um, as the person writing the checks, I, there were many nights I was in my bed thinking, wow, that was another $125,000 check I just wrote. So, um, you know, I think the challenges were to get my mind around the investment, the financial side of this is, is, and my husband's great. He's a physician now, but he was a business major in college. And so he's always like, oh, it's just money. You're just investing in the business. Why do you worry about it? But you know, we're not taught any of that in medical school. So, so that's why I worry about it. Um, but just really working with somebody who's knowledgeable about the money and the setting up the practice. So working with a good accountant who can tell me these are normal expenses. It's not you know, this is all part of it. Um, it just helping my mind get right around the expenses of setting up a practice. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, mine are in the middle of the night. I think um, as I've coached people, we all have our time. Mine is first thing in the morning. I wake up in the morning in like the utter panic of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly enough, I found that it actually gave me a lot more appreciation for the administrators of the hospital because they're making these big decisions all the time. And, you know, recognizing that there is a lot of stress in each of these decisions, um, you know, gave me a little bit more of an insight into what they might have to be looking at. Um, and when we ask for something that they have to find some way to justify it too, because, you know, we're all, you know, in the end, best case scenario, we're all looking at the viability of everything, you know, our jobs, the hospitals, the, our ability to take care of patients. Um, and so that for one thing, it gave me a lot more appreciation for some of the things that I did not understand before. Yeah. I, well, I think you re, you've reached a point, maybe I haven't reached quite yet with your appreciation of the hospital administrators. <laughs> So kudos to you. I'm sure I will get there. No, it, as people, I, I there are several of them I see, I, I like as people. Um, I, I, I make that, it's a joke, but. Um, 
Well, you know, I, it's so funny that you're mentioning it because I have, I came from a very similar, uh, or I'm in a similar situation where we have a 250 bed hospital and, you know, I do have a lot more of a relationship with the CEO and we just went from one beloved CEO to another one who's becoming, you know, or who's been around and is, is more beloved. So I think that, you know, I see their hearts being in the right places. And so I, I don't have as many layers as some other people too. And we've been fortunate that they've really tried to preserve the culture of, mm-hmm. um, you know, really um, hoping for the best for everyone and really trying to, uh, you know, over communicate and things like that too. But, um, you know, it, it's, it makes a huge difference to be able to see that. I think some of these bigger systems, especially just like you said, the more layers that are there, um, you know, I, I certainly see and have a little bit more understanding than some of these bigger places that I, that are a lot harder to understand. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, when our, when our hospital went to over 500 beds, things changed pretty dramatically. So. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see like the level of satisfaction or dissatisfaction physicians based on the size of the hospital for sure. Well, I I can tell you, there's a lot of, there have been a lot of resignations of, of doctors that had been there for many, many years. Um, so there, there are a lot of new physicians on staff and a lot of, uh, long-time physicians that have resigned slash retired or things like that. Yeah. My theory is this, is that the bigger these hospital systems get, even the more hospitals that they buy and all too, which is certainly a big corporate trend. Um, the problem is, is that the only way to manage a big system like that is to have lots of rules and lots of restrictions. Right. And, you know, I think we as physicians, especially like mid-career are like, dude, I'm out. No, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm 46 years old. And I need less rules in my life, not more. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> the whole idea. And, you know, I do think that it's around that, that age that I definitely see that uh, as a trend, you know, that was me myself. I think I, I started private practice when I was 46. Um, and it sounds like that was your trend too. So right. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so where do you see your future challenges going? Mm, good question. Ah, um, I see no future challenges. What are you talking about? Yes. No, I think it's the same for everyone. You know, reimbursements are going down supposedly in, in the ENT world in January, we're going to have 8%, 8% cut um, in our reimbursement, which, you know, as the expenses of running a practice and paying your staff goes up and your reimbursements go down, um, there's that frustrating aspect of how do we, how do we keep the lights on? But, um, I think for us, you know, we also think about ancillary revenue. So there are a lot of things that we can do in private practice. So in the ENT world, we have a lot of patients who want allergy shots and we have a lot of patients, um, who need hearing aids. And so, um, I think we do need to continue to be open-minded of, of what we can offer our patients in an accessible way um, to help generate some ancillary revenue is one. Yes. And I think in setting up challenges like that, because there's certainly, I mean, that math is there and a challenge, but it certainly, especially with a small and nimble, we can be a lot more innovative um, and a lot more, um, you know, just broad-minded when it comes to what we can offer. And, you know, I think that speaking to the, um, uh, our ability to be entrepreneurs, which is not for the faint of heart, um, you know, then it's just another challenge. Um, it's a different problem to solve. And in that case, I mean, well, I wanted to, you know, for me personally, I wanted a challenge and here it is. Right. Welcome. Welcome to the challenge. <laughs> but I mean, really, like when it comes down to it, it goes down to the why. Like when I have troubles like this, I have the same, you know, concerns, obviously, of the future. But 
I did this to have a better experience for patients, Mm -hmm. a better experience for myself to create the culture that I want. And and that is not limited by the amount of money coming in. The margins may be less, but again, you know, I could rethink this and be innovative and come up with things and come up with different partnerships. Um, So in, in the end, if your why is strong enough, then everything is just a problem to solve. Exactly. No, that's it. That's you're exactly right. And, you know, I find I am so much more accessible to patients now than I ever was. I mean, when I was in that big system, I had to quit accepting new patients because there were so many patients in that hospital system that I was booked out for months and months and months. I mean, my surgery schedule was three months booked out. I I would literally about once a year have to stop accepting new patients, um, which was frustrating for a lot of my long-term patients. You know, they could never get in to see me. So now I, I I have the most loyal, most amazing patients ever. Um, I see so many of them now and they love that I'm accessible. I'm easy to get to. My location's great. They can just pop in to my office. Um, so you're exactly right. If you focus on your why, taking great care of patients in an affordable way um, and just giving them an experience where they feel valued and respected, um, I think we'll continue to do well. Yes, but of course, you know, you don't leave it there. Now, tell us what you're doing with the um, the National Society. Oh, so there has been an initiative in the American Academy of Otolaryngology um, to focus on development of private practice. So our, within our academy, we have different sections um, and there has, we've just realized that, you know, majority throughout the country, the majority of ENT physicians are in private practice, but um, largely that group has not felt felt well represented in our academy. So we are now forming a section, a private practice group within our academy. And, and right now we're a study group. We have to be a study group for two years. So we're the private practice study group. Um, and we have several hundred members already. Um, and I'm on the executive committee for that study group as we become a section within our national academy. And I mean, I think this is what we do if we want change. You know, we do this on a microcosm level, but I think it's really admirable that you are also doing this on the level um, of our societies because, you know, do we really want change? Well, then this is really the way that we have to do it. You're hundred percent right. And interestingly, it, you know, one of a colleague said to me, why are you investing all this time? You're investing way too much time in something that doesn't pay you back. <laughs> and, and that's one way to look at it, right? Why are you doing this for free? And I said to him, I said, if I don't do it, you're never going to have anybody to leave your practice to in 20 years. So somebody has to be the person that's helping the next group of doctors realize that private practice is viable. Private practice is thriving. Private practice is a great option. I mean, we have so few females in particular going into private practice, and I could get on that topic altogether. Um, But I said, if if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And then then we're all going to end up being hospital employed or something worse. I mean, I love that you mentioned this because, you know, I work with this all the time in my coaching groups too, is like our perceptions on money and free value and free time and things like that. And I mean, there is fully, I fully support insisting on getting paid for our time. Absolutely. Because there's so much free work that we do, but, and so there's certainly a monetary component of a lot that we do, but sometimes, and and I think especially as private practice, we know what our time is worth because we see it when we stop doing stuff, you know, money stops flowing in. So we have all people, you know, understand a little bit more what our time is worth and some things are worth the investment. And so something like that of the national societies, I mean, you're not going to get paid. And is that, 
but you're going to get paid in what your time is worth. And, and that is the thing. If you want change, this is how you speak it. You speak with your feet and leave. And the second is that you educate others and, and empower others to make those decisions. And then third is sometimes you have to put in the time with the national societies and say, we need change. And, and I know that this is uh, a way that's possible to do that. Right. I, well, the, the way I look at it is if, if I don't do it, there's I'm never going to have I'm, I'm not going to have that young female partner coming into my practice that I really want and somebody that I can mentor and help grow. Um, I feel like I need to put in that time in my on the national level at this point um, so that women physicians in particular, all physicians, but women physicians in particular realize this is a viable option. And, you know, we are, we were within the group, within this um, study group, we we're talking about, well, how can we reach the next, the next level of physicians? I said, well, people need to realize that there, there are those of us doing it. You know, I'm married to a physician. I have three kids that are very active in all their activities and I have a thriving practice. So you, you can do it all. Um, you just really have to get focused on how to use your time wisely. I completely agree. Um, and some of these things are worth doing. Mm-hmm. Great. So what do you see as your next steps? I just, I plan on us growing, expanding to right now we have three offices. I en- envision us having a fourth office. I envision us adding physicians to our group um, who are like-minded. Um, that's, that's my next step over the next year. And when it comes to this focus group, you know, what can the ENTs that are listening, um, how can they help or how can they be involved? Well, first of all, they can join um, into the private practice study group. We have a webinar coming up in January where we are actually presenting the pri- the, the practice model. So we, we're going to have a webinar um, with an academic ENT, um, a hospital employed ENT, and two private practice ENTs, basically talking about the pros and cons of each model um, and, and to let people know how they could fit into each of those different models. Um, and so basically, they just need to get involved in the private practice study group within the Academy of Otolaryngology. And so is that where they find them, the Academy of um, Otolaryngology? You got it. Yep. On our website. Okay, perfect. And I'll put a link there too, um, to that website too. Uh, and then definitely when that webinar comes out, you know, let me know. And I'm happy to post it in the boss Facebook group as well. Awesome. I'd love that. All right. Any last thoughts, any other uh, parting words that you want to give to someone who's thinking about private practice? It's doable. I have found working with a coach incredibly valuable about um, helping me get focused and helping me control my mind in a, a positive way. Um, and helping me really get focused on what my goals are and really how to achieve those goals. So I think um, if people haven't been exposed to coaching and, you know, because we think we should be able to do it all because we're smart people, well, we are smart people. um, But sometimes there's somebody that can teach us about using our mind in even better ways. So using a coach has been one of the most valuable experiences truly of my life. I will say I'm a different person than I was six years ago before I used a coach. So I would really encourage people to think about getting a physician coach to help you uh, focus on your goals and achieve your goals. I couldn't agree more. And I think that our ability to be successful is directly proportional to how we manage negative emotions. Oh, you nailed it. You nailed it because, you know, you can crawl in a hole and cry and say, I'm depressed. And, um, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I have had tears there. There are times where the frustrations, I mean, there, there are tears, but managing our mind is the key to success, really. Exactly. Because they're going to happen. I mean, negative emotions come up. 
The question is, what are you going to do about it? And this is probably going to air after this, but uh, um, I have a webinar coming up that's free for everyone is creating safety at work, which I'm sure people don't understand. But really what it is, is what do you do with these negative emotions that come up? And this is really the, the difference between success and not being as successful as you could be is what you do with those negative emotions, which as we were talking about first, the, before we start recording, the very first thing it does is open up time to do more things that lead you to be more successful. You're exactly right. It was great talking to you. Uh, thank you so much. And this is going to be so helpful for so many people. And I cannot wait to see what else you come up with. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And I'm happy to answer any questions anyone may have. Perfect. For more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.